0: Hey guys, Ron Placone here. Some screening updates. February 16th, that's coming up this week. Chicago, Illinois. Left at Wall will be screening in Chicago. And some leftist punk bands are going to follow the movie. So check that out. It's going to be a fun time. February 22nd, Tucson, Arizona. Left at Wall is screening in Tucson. February 29th, Left at Wall will be screening in Omaha, Nebraska. March 18th, note the date change. The original date was March 20th. But March 18th is the Washington, D.C. screening of Left at Wall. Now, that's a free screening, guys. The date has switched. It was originally going to be March 20th. It is now March 18th. But all the other information is still the same, same place, and it's a free screening. March 22nd, we're having a show screening and Q&A in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That means I'm going to be there. April 14th, we're having a show screening and Q&A in Los Angeles, California. That's going to be an awesome uh, that's going to be an awesome night, Los Angeles. Can't wait. That's April 14th. And June 8th, come out and hang out with us up in the mountains. We're going to be in Idlewild, California. Really cool indie theater up there in Idlewild. We're going to be doing a show with some cast members, a screening of the film, and a QA and a after. You can get tickets and more information for all events at romplacone.com. Episode 22, Jill Stein. Jill Stein is a doctor, environmentalist, activist, and prominent member of the Green Party USA. She's run for office in the past, and she's running for president this year, 2024. I first met her during my time working on The Jimmy Dore Show, and I've interviewed her in different capacities over the years. Given the nature of 1,000, this may be our last interview together. Please welcome to the show, Jill Stein. Jill Stein, good to see you again, as always. Great to see you, Ron. So I I want to kind of start at the beginning. Um, What got you interested in politics and and then what got you into the Green Party?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I sort of describe myself as a mother on fire. I grew up in the Vietnam era. You know, I was standing on a street corner in front of our public library in Highland Park, Illinois, like back in the 60s um, about the Vietnam War before it was like even on the radar. And that was always like a big motivator for me. And then, you know, kind of being in college during, you know, the assassinations and watching the repression at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Actually, I was still in high school then. But, you know, during my impressionable formative years, you know, I really saw social uprisings uh, for racial justice, against the war, uh, for the women's movement, and the beginnings of the environmental movement. And I was living in kind of sterile suburbia, and not liking it, and not knowing why I didn't like it. And it was just so... um, uh it was like this powerful life force to see what was really going on and sort of struggles for social justice and peace. And they just became kind of my lifeblood. And then when I had kids, and at that point, I was a medical doctor. And I began to like see in my community, in my family, you know, asthma and you know, just health conditions related to the environment and environmental justice. And that kind of became a passion for me. And, you know, that's when kind of the real mother on fire thing really took hold. And I became increasingly involved in uh Protecting health and enabling health before people get chronically sick and come to the doctor's office and then it's extremely expensive to try to do damage control and you're constantly uh, kind of going against the grain to uh, help people you know find their health and claim their health and one thing led to another i you know, I was not a member of any political party and found them all very corrupt, you know, having witnessed, you know, the Vietnam War and LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? And and the repression around the Democratic Convention in Chicago, uh, you know, to me, political parties were always uh, anathema and I didn't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, I had become involved as a health advocate And kind of a community health advocate, helping communities fight, um, environmental threats to their health, uh, coal plants and incinerators and, uh, toxic waste sites and things like that. And, and I was very involved in positions for social responsibility, trying to help empower communities to have a fighting chance. And, I began to see uh, how incredibly tilted the playing field is, and how incredibly tilted the whole political process is, and how very corrupt it is, and that you could have solutions that protect health, provide jobs, uh, you know, protect the environment, our air and our water, and all that, and that save money, you know, and improve the economy, you know, sort of a green jobs uh, paradigm. And that didn't matter. You know, the legislature didn't care. And even when you had really powerful coalitions put together to move bills, they wouldn't move because it's money that moves bills. And uh, as I saw kind of the options for um, improving our lives being shut down increasingly, uh, I at that point was recruited, or I should say tricked, by the Green Party into running for governor. And their pitch was, hey, you can fight for all those things, clean air and good jobs and, you know, and, and living wages uh, and moving the military budget to the true threats to our security uh, related to the climate and the economy. Uh, you could do all that and more. Just call it a political campaign and speak to more people. And so I was sort of tricked into this concept of what it meant to run for office. And I discovered I was not prepared for this at all. And, oh, Wait,
0: uh, it, so what were you, what were you kind of expecting? And then what were, what were the biggest surprises then?
1: Oh, I thought I could just continue being mostly a health advocate. I thought I could continue being like the doc from Physicians for Social Responsibility, just, uh, helping to, you know, educate people and promote solutions and, you know, teach people about that. And then I discovered two things. One, in a campaign, if you're teaching, you're losing. No time to teach. You got to really speak to people where they are. And number two, you can't have a confined agenda. You know, you can't just talk about health or the right to health care, you know, which was also kind of something I'd been very involved in, or campaign finance reform. You know, that was a third major issue for me and had really kind of um, triggered my entry into politics when uh, the, Demo- the progressive Democrats in Massachusetts killed campaign finance reform. They killed public financing, which we had passed uh, by a two-to-one margin uh, in a referendum campaign. We passed this clean elections law, which the legislature wouldn't touch because they want their big money and they want you know their friends in high places to support them. So they didn't want any campaign finance reform. And um, you know, it was like seeing that, that, you know, that for me, that was the last straw. It was like when when the Democrats would not fix and wouldn't allow the people to fix, you know, the main driver of corruption in our political system, when they wouldn't even allow that. For me, that was like the absolute last straw. And I was ready to go all in um, at that point in, in the political fight. Um, but what I discovered is that you have to You know, you really have to learn a lot and you really have to speak to a much broader agenda. And if you want to have a political movement that gets traction, you really have to uh, connect with many constituencies and find out about things. I really wasn't following education, you know, student debt, um, you know, greater, you know, uh, the greater perspective about uh, war and capitalism and things like that, that, you know, I was a geek, I was a science geek. And so it was kind of like a very rude, uh, awakening and transition, but it was so wonderful because I, I like, it was for me, politics was like the absolute last resort, something that I went to only after everything else had failed, but everything else was failing. And as a health an environmental advocate, I was just seeing, you know, I was studying, I was helping to write, uh, you know, reports and, and books for physicians for social responsibility about kind of the unraveling, the permanent unraveling of this space in which we live, you know, the biosphere, basically, it's permanent contamination. That was kind of my big focus within environmental health was, you know, toxic pollution and how it comes up through the food chain and water and air and its sources and consumer products and all that. And I felt like I was documenting the demise of civilization. And I just got, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. So I, you know, it's like, I couldn't just say that this is okay, you know, because I just had to study, you know, in studying it, I just saw too clearly where it was going. And, I just felt like, oh my God, you know, I have to scream fire here because this is an imminent threat. This isn't like long range. This is like really killing us right now. And it's growing really fast. And then learning about the climate uh, in 2008, I sort of discovered uh, what was going on with the climate emergency. So that that became an issue that compounded the others. Um, you know, so At any rate, I had entered the race in the year uh, 2002. It was the governor's race in 2002 where the Republican opponent actually was Mitt Romney. Um, The uh, Democrat was Shannon O'Brien, who was a uh, she was like the state treasurer at that point, you know, big name. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I entered that race with great trepidation. But, I felt like there was nowhere else to turn. You had to sort of descend into the nether world of of politics in order to fight this battle and you know so I entered out of desperation, but I came out of it with incredible inspiration because what I found was that the public is not at all in the place that the press would have you believe. The public, even back in the year 2002, didn't need to be convinced. They only needed to know that there was another option out there. And, you know, that's very difficult because our, you know, our uh, best democracy money can buy, you know, systematically suppresses and smears and um, vilifies its opponents. So it is very hard to get the word out and to develop credibility and to build alternative parties, because alternative parties, they don't last. You know, if they're not corporate and they don't have big sources of income, they're usually gone within 10 years. And that is true for every alternative party, except the Greens. Not that the Greens are the be-all, end-all of parties. You know, we have struggles, and it's very hard to maintain a um, – an independent third party that doesn't rely on corporate money. But if you go down the corporate money thing, then, you know, then it's all over uh, from the get go and you're just taking marching orders from your funders. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a real struggle to do it, but, um, it was clear that, you know, we had to do it. And, you know, I will say that the greens are the one party that has survived. You know, we are like the worst small party that there's ever been except for all the others that ever existed and have been wiped off the map. You can look at the Labor Party. You know, there was a Labor Party established around the same time of the Greens, I think in the 1980s, under Tony Mazaki, who was really a wonderful labor leader. And, uh, you know, he was really pushing that labor needs its own party. And so they built one. But it never got off the ground. It had way more institutional structure and support and money and all that. But they could never get past kind of the spoiler trap and could never kind of get behind their campaigns. So they never ran campaigns. Um, You know, Peace and Freedom at one point was a, you know, they had a national scope maybe 15, 18 ballots, something like that. Now they're beaten back to one state, you know, California. You can look at the socialist parties that had uh, representatives into Congress and mayors and, you know, uh, were, you know, state legislatures. They were hugely influential and made an incredible mark in, you know, public schools and, um, uh, you know, all sorts of – uh, public services that came to us through the socialists, but they were wiped out as a national or even as a state uh, force and were beaten back to basically, um, you know, city council representatives, you know, and that's kind of in one or two cities, that's where they are, you know? So, so we get beaten back and it's not by accident, you know, uh, that's the way our system is very much structured in order to silence um you know, progressive forces and and progressive populism, really, which is very strong, mobilized behind Bernie Sanders, kind of got betrayed, and, you know, is sort of struggling to find itself again right now. But I think, you know, the way things are shaping up, there are several progressive candidates, but there's really only one pro-worker, anti-war, anti-genocide climate action campaign that is on track right now to be on the ballot across the country. So the odds are and this is not known to the press yet because the press doesn't really understand how ballot access works and you know what the dynamics of of that is. But, you know, truth to tell right now we are we have 75% of the work done. It's 20 of the states, but many of those are like Texas and California and um Florida, the biggest uh most expensive and most difficult states to get on the ballot. So if you actually look at the total number of signatures you have to get and the money you have to spend we're there already 75%. And that's thanks largely to the state parties that have, you know, uh kept the heat on and have renewed their ballot status. Uh and by running for office and they know the tricks of the trade. So that work is mostly done. If you look at um you know RFK who's talking a very big game he's actually on the ballot i think in one mm. state maybe two and talking about raising 18 million dollars oops but that's not so easy to do so now maybe it's going to be the libertarian party who knows a lot of talk but if you look behind the he'll be doing
0: do he'll be doing something different an hour later i, I have i have no Patience for that guy. I, I have no interest in what he has to say. You, you don't have to agree or disagree. I know you're a very diplomatic person, but I have no use for RFK uh, at all. Um, so let's talk about your campaign. Then what? What made you decide to run this time around?
1: I was not going to run this time around, and mm-hmm. I helped uh, recruit Cornell uh, West to run as a Green Party candidate. And I I was really relieved when he agreed to do that because there was a lot of pressure on me to step up to the plate. And, you know, there were a lot of forces that rallied around Dr. West. Um, but it's very hard to build a relationship with a party when you are uh, in the heat of the, you know, in the in the heat of the game. In a presidential race. It's very hard. I mean, I myself ran as a green for three or four different elections before I actually developed a relationship with the party and understood how things worked enough for it to be, uh, you know, synergistic at all. You know, otherwise the party was just kind of like, uh, you know, a cross to bear and it didn't really provide resources and, and, and support to my campaign as much because I didn't know how to interact with it at all. So it it takes a while and it's very, you know, it's like impossible to do that when you're running for president. So, you know, by hook or by crook, it didn't work out. And Dr. West wanted to be able to have the freedom of a solo voice, which is what he's been for his whole life. And, you know, so when he decided to do that, and we only had a couple of weeks in order to make the California deadline, Otherwise, we were not going to be on the ballot in California, which would knock us back several million dollars, um, you know, in an effort to be a real challenge to empire and a challenge to power. Um, We had to scramble. And so there was a really uh, rapid-fire search that many of us activist Greens undertook. And Ajamu Baraka and I, you know, who had together, you know, work to get Cornell into that seat. He wanted me to run. I wanted him to run. And basically, he won the argument. Mainly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was stepping up to the plate because I did not want to see our decades worth of work that established our ballot access. Because if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And then you're starting all over from the beginning. I felt like I had spent too many decades helping to build the ability to challenge empire and empire really needs challenging because it's more abusive and predatory than ever but it's also on its last legs you know it is a uh, an unraveling empire an obsolete empire and if we didn't have an anti-war anti-genocide campaign On the green ballot line, I was pretty convinced that there would not be a challenger, that the war and genocide would not be issues in this campaign, let alone climate, let alone uh, the state of emergency for working people. These are all existential crises. And if Greens were not on the ballot, the Libertarians were not going to carry that weight. Mm -hmm. They would probably be on the ballot, but they're sure not carrying that agenda. In some ways the anti war thing although even that's a little bit under debate right now it's hard to know which way the libertarians are going but they are not a grassroots party you know they they have big money so they don't have kind of the uh um the kind of security guarantees that we have as a grassroots party we don't take corporate money we don't allow super pacs um i mean we cannot legally prohibit them but we can um we can disavow them you know and uh clarify that uh we completely revile the concept of super PACs. RFK has a super PAC, you know, Democrats and Republicans always have super PACs. Um, The uh, so-called no labels party, which is really just an astroturf pretense of a party. You know, they, they're basically one super PAC. Um, You know, that, that, that's not who we are, you know? So uh, I was extremely, protective of what we have built over the decades. And I didn't want to see it bite the dust. And there wasn't going to be another campaign that could rally and get a team put together in the time frame that we had, which was only a couple of weeks. So I stepped up to the plate. But shortly after that decision was made, before we had announced, uh, the genocide began in Gaza. And at that point, I was so... You know, I was just so grateful that we have this megaphone and we have this um, uh, framework for fighting back against genocide and empire. I was just so grateful that we were putting forward the strongest campaign that I think the Greens are capable of mounting at this point and probably the strongest campaign that we've ever had. So, you know, I just feel like this has to happen.
0: So I uh, I have a ton of respect for you and Dr. West. Um, I don't agree with Dr. West's decision. I, I, I was very disappointed uh, when he decided to not run with the Greens. I will, though, have to ask you this question for the millionth and first time. Is there any chance that the two of you might join up?
1: As far as I'm concerned, absolutely yes. Okay. And we put that offer on the table to pursue this. You know, we don't have to lock in, but shouldn't we pursue this? Aren't there uh, really powerful advantages here for the movement? And kind of got a not interested. We'll see. Maybe that will change. Maybe with additional public pressure, it will change. But I think it's, you know, there are so many um, benefits to that alliance we owe it to the movement to at least give it some serious consideration.
0: Well, I, I, I mean, obviously I, I would be a big, uh, you know, proponent. I, I would love to see that happen again as, as somebody who is a big fan of you both. Um, and, and yeah, it, it would be, I, I think just the, the best move. Uh, so here's hoping, but, but, but good to hear your perspective. Um, So, I, uh, Green, entered recently. I was uh, no party preference for a while. And, um, you know, in California, with all of our flaws, um, and there are many, just like everywhere else, but we are one of the states where I feel like it's easier to just be no party preference than Mm -hmm. it is in other places, comparatively speaking – but I decided to green enter. um, And so what, what advice would you have for somebody who recently green entered?
1: There are many ways uh, to be green, you know, and not everybody is a, is a party organization person. Mm -hmm. And I think the greens are still on a learning curve about how to do this. And as a, um, as a grassroots uh small d democratic uh organization there are always challenges and um it can be up and down if you're doing the organization thing but i encourage people who have an appetite for it you know a lot of people just don't want to work with organizations and that's fine and on that score I'd say, you know, there's a gazillion things you can do, which you do as a journalist. You know, you're just automatically communicating with people and helping to educate people and supporting grassroots movements and helping to connect the dots, helping people understand why these movements don't exist in a vacuum, why they need uh, to struggle for power. And, you know, there's just so much that everyone can do uh yeah, you know, Americans are not terribly literate politically. We don't get political education. We don't understand about multi democracy. And all of that is really important. And there are many ways that people connect to the Green Party. We have various committees. We, for example, have a uh, GPAC, the Green Party Peace Action Committee, which does really great. Uh, webinars and education and networking around war. You know, they did fabulous stuff on Ukraine. They really helped uh, carve a consensus within within the Green Party, which initially had some splits around that, but those have pretty much unified into a very strong, you know, anti-war, um, uh, uh, ceasefire, you know, emergency uh, kind of consensus. So that's one group. There's a terrific um, monetary reform group, um, you know, that includes public banking. And, you know, so you can find your issue group to do really great work with. Um, There's, you know, also a a Black Caucus, which is focused on racial justice issues. So you can find, um, uh, you know, sort of movement actions to work with. And from my experience, doing work on movements without the political dimension is not a good use of your time because you're going to be, you know, raked through the coals uh, at the end of the day. You have to have power, you know, in the words of Frederick Douglass, power conceives nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. So, you know, I think having a political base for movement action is really important. You know likewise uh in labor, we have some really interesting uh connections now as the labor movement begins to throw off the chains of uh of the democratic party it's you know it's a little bit touch and go, but for example the amazon uh union the amazon workers union, they're really great about this, you know, and they make no bones about. Uh, Not being constrained by the Democratic Party to their credit. Same thing for the Railroad Workers Union, you know, who were struggling, uh, they, you know, who were struggling with safety on the railroad, who would have prevented, had they gotten their, you know, demands met, had they been able to strike, we never would have had the absolute uh, catastrophe at East Palestine, which continues to this day. And which we are at risk for, you know, in a million other sites around the country as these very dangerous cargoes are being carried through communities without adequate staffing on top of everything else. I mean, these cargoes should not be people should not be in harm's way. Uh To start with, but then to have you
0: want you want somebody who has been on call for eighty hours straight, away from yeah, their right. home, working to the bone. You want them operating a freight train with poisonous chemicals. Exactly, it, 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 it's absolutely mind blowing. And then you have these just delusional people who are calling it a victory when when they they they, they stab the strike in the neck, and then they got a fraction of the sick time they were asking for, and th- and that was yeah. some kind of victory. Are, are you out of your mind?
1: Yes. And can I say this is, you know, this is not the only case in point, you know, of how the Democratic Party, you know, when they talk about spoilers, they are the biggest spoiler here because they've absolutely betrayed their base. And that's working people. They have completely sabotaged the right to strike here by by forbidding the railroad workers uh from striking, by, you know, abandoning the living wage, the $15 uh, minimum wage which they tossed out by abandoning the public option, you know, on issue after, and and likewise on climate. You know, there's such a scam of, um, you know, a a PR, a public relations scam around the Democrats as rescuing the climate and Trump being like this unique threat. Well, how about the 22 uh, liquid natural gas plants, the LNG plants, 22 of them that are in process right now under the Biden administration. Now, he just agreed to put a hold, a temporary hold, and rethink this in advance of the election because people are going ballistic when they hear about this. And most people haven't heard that this plan, having been approved by the uh, Biden White House and Biden's agencies, I believe mainly FERC, these are equivalent to building 440 new coal plants. Oh, Yes. And tell us how terrible Trump is. Um, well, I'm sorry, but we have two greater evil parties right here who are both hellbent on destroying the climate, you know, and the whole explosion of LNG plants. Why did that happen? It, beca- it was because the, um, you know, the destruction of the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, which was celebrated by the Biden administration and uh, arguably uh, created and planned or at least signed off on by the Biden administration that then allowed all these new LNG plants to be built, these export facilities to be built in the US, likewise in the EU, and we're not even counting those. Um, you know, that and, and they're all local disasters to our offshore um ecosystems as well. When you build these plants, they're extremely devastating. Uh, and so you have this basically the equivalent of 440 new coal plants, which, by the way, are not don't worry, they're not being counted because they're being exported. And the way the accounting works, you don't have to worry about uh, your exports, which is outrageous. And let me say that on day one of a Stein presidency, um, we will permanently end them all which the president has emergency authority to do uh, simply by declaring a climate emergency and how it's not a climate emergency when we are, you know, in the process of melting down in so many ways, if you care to open your eyes and look around you, you know, just in terms of the heat waves, the inordinate uh, temperature rise, the storms, the sea level rise. Right now
0: in Southern California, we're getting storms right now.
1: Yes, and how about the Colorado River that supplies your agriculture, which is within one or two years of shutting down? There is no plan because there is nothing that's going to substitute for that. So what about the emergency of California's agriculture shutting down? That's not just a problem for California.
0: That's a problem for the country. Half of our
1: fruits and vegetables, thank
0: you. This is
1: our food supply about to shut down. And they are in complete denial about that. They're also in complete denial about... What's happening with the breakup of the ice sheets? And there's one ice sheet in particular in uh, the Antarctic called the Thwaites Glacier, which is in the process of breaking up. It is losing its shelf. The shelf is like the break. If this is the sheet of ice, okay, it's up on rock get into the picture here. The sheet of ice is sitting on rock here. That's under the continent, but it's flowing into the ocean, okay? And here's the ocean. And where the ice sheet meets the ocean, you have a shelf. The shelf is breaking up. So the shelf is basically going away right now. It's disappearing. And when the shelf disappears, there is no break on that ice sheet. And the ice sheet can then slide from rock into the water. It doesn't even have to melt. But as it begins to slide, boom, up goes the sea level, and you're talking two feet, From that ice sheet alone, two feet of sea level. That's not going to happen in a day, but scientists actually don't know whether it will happen in 10 years, which would be utterly catastrophic, or whether it will happen over a century. They don't know. And there's the possibility for any of that to happen. So the fact that we are crawling right up to that brink, that absolute disaster on sea level rise is unthinkable. And that's, you know, that's just like the beginning of it. People who, there are a lot of people who are in denial right now about uh, climate change. It's sort of become fashionable among, I don't know, liberals or people who consider themselves progressive and independent or something who don't understand science. And, you know, this is not to, um, you know, declare science rules. Science has to come together with community values. And they have to both be be there together. And science cannot be in the hands of uh Uh, people and regulatory bodies with conflicts of interest. You know, Mm -hmm. I spent a long time getting educated for science, you know, Mm -hmm. um, probably 20 years of science education. And, you know, I have a um, I'm very comfortable reading data and knowing when it kind of smells, you know, when it's not, because data is going to be all over the place. It always will. And you really have to understand the trends and what the strengths and the drawbacks of various studies are and all that. So I'm not comfortable with agencies who are basically uh, taking, you know, their support and their lifeblood from corporations. You know, and there's been enormous corporate capture in the same way of our elections, likewise with our regulatory agencies. You're so saying I-
0: ExxonMobil's studies might not have been impartial. Which ones? Uh, oh, global, suggesting. <laughs> well, I think that's something a lot of just general people kind of miss when it comes to science. Like it is based on exploration. It is based on tested hypotheses. It is based, like you said, data is going to be all over the place. So it's like you also see people, they'll just sort of cherry pick one thing and go, here it is. It's like that. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. That is just not how it works to reach scientific consensus on anything takes just testing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And we were all taught this stuff, but you know, it it just kind of, some people just sort of forget it when they just want to either not worry about something or they just want their confirmation bias met.
1: Exactly. And I think that's the thing about our regulations, you know, that our regulatory institutions have become too uh, corporate infested not that they're that way all the time and not that all of their decisions are compromised but some of them are and mm-hmm. you just can't have confidence i can't have confidence as a scientist i can't have confidence without there being assurances that the adjudicators the, you know the people sitting in the regulatory seats are not part of the revolving door between corporations you know like Monsanto Um, executives were rotating into the FDA at the time that GMOs were being, you know, uh, evaluated. And, you know, to my mind, that's just disastrous. It's disastrous. Like in the same way Ralph Nader talks about the, uh, you know, Boeing and and the big airlines basically running the FAA. So it's no wonder we have airplanes that crash and that the doors, you know, uh, fly open When you're at 10,000 feet, you don't have, we're not being protected. What's being protected are the corporate profits. And so you don't want to just fix this one issue at a time. You really need a blanket comprehensive solution, uh, which is closing the revolving door. It has to be just shut. You can't move from industry into government and, uh, you know, and campaign contributions We should not have legalized bribery of of uh, politicians, period.
0: Do you think uh, so? I I know we're running low on time, so I want to get a few more things in here. Um, Do you think the left is better off with or without the Internet? Uh, And the kind of precursor to this question is, you know, you look at an entity like the Greens who officially formed on the national level, and correct me if any of my numbers are off, but officially formed at the national level in, I believe, around 1987. uh, They won their first election within five years. You've not seen anything like that uh, duplicated since. And that was before the Internet. That was back when you were just, you know, taking out space in in lefty magazines and and mailing things. So uh, is the left better with or without the Internet? I mean, obviously, without it's not an option anymore. But what would you say was was a better era?
1: Um, personally, I'm very grateful uh, for the internet and even for social media. It's a very mixed bag, um, but it's not an unsolvable problem. Put it that way, and i i I think it's really important to remember we have a choice. We are a democracy, and we have public airwaves and public forums that should be subject. To um, public protections, and we're not—we're not adequately protected right now. It's really big tech is being protected, and their monopolies and their profits are being protected. So you know that's all really a whole discussion unto itself how we could improve that, but we definitely can. Uh, there's a real struggle for free speech now on on the internet. You know, uh, one of the things Matt Taibbi found when he was looking through. The Twitter files was that I was classified along with WikiLeaks as Russian, and I I am suppressed on social media, but even so uh, it's still the only way to really broadly reach people without having big bucks so I think we need to restore those protections and net neutrality and uh, freedom of speech and get corporations out of this position that they're in right now where they are sort of surrogates for government censorship you know that was another thing revealed in the twitter files that there was you know total documentation there that that government agencies including like the FBI and I don't remember who else but government agencies i think like the NSA they were dictating to twitter who should be you know who should be um either taken off or basically uh shadow banned, and I've been shadow banned. I don't know if that has been rolled back cause we now have substantial reach, but I wonder what it would be if we weren't being banned.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't think any of the existing problems got much better. Um, but so I want to, I want to do this. I, I'm working on a piece talking about green entering and, uh, <laughs> for part of it is, um, uh, part of it what i'm doing is i'm listing some of the tropes that you're commonly told and then i'm responding to each one of them uh the piece isn't out yet but chances are when this episode drops it will be out so i thought in closing this is sort of like a little fun thing we can do like rapid fire style i'm gonna say some of those tropes to you and you can give your response to them uh so here's the first one you're voting for trump
1: You're voting for who you're voting for. The Democrats don't own your vote; they have to earn your vote. Really reject their propaganda of powerlessness. Uh, they have a stake in this propaganda. The biggest spoiler there ever was, or so we say, the most spoiled election there ever was, was uh, 2010, when the Democrats lost a thousand seats in uh, state legislatures. They lost 64 congressional seats and uh, 13. Uh, Senate seats and about as many governorships, no third parties to blame it on. they have basically thrown working people under the bus, so that continues. Third parties are none you know it's it's b s and don 't let them talk you out of standing up for yourself and your right to a uh, free choice in elections if you don 't have free choice in elections, they 're not elections
0: all right, next trope. the green Party will never be a mainstream party in the u s
1: Same thing was said of the abolitionist party, which then became the Republican party basically um, says who, you know, says who that third parties will never be mainstream. I mean, we make the rules, we can change the rules. They're just trying to talk you out of your power to change the rules. We should have ranked choice voting in every state. We should have proportional representation. We should have really the power of democracy. It's really built into all democracies that are most modern democracies have uh, um, you know, voting systems that are far more democratic than ours. And we need to, you know, kind of get with the program.
0: Okay, last trope. Um, But our system is only set up for two parties.
1: You know, says who? (laughs) Uh, Set up that way by design in order to silence the uh, competition that the powers that be are terrified of. Look at, you know, 63%, according to Gallup, want a new independent third party or want a third party because the parties of war on wall street have done such a disastrous job of representing everyday people so this is our democracy we own it we get to make the rules
0: so where can people go to learn more about you more about the campaign where do you want to send people
1: So, you know, I'll just say uh, connecting the dots here that this is one of the best ways to do Green Enter is to get involved with the campaign. Uh, And actually, that applies across the board. That is one of the most effective ways to uh, be a green activist. So people can join our campaign at JillStein2024.com. And you can sign up, you know, to volunteer in one way or another. We do trainings. Uh, We have a lot of fun. It's really a very wonderful, really exciting moment whose time has come really to demand an America and a world that works for all of us because it's not working for all of us and we need to make it happen. So join the team and uh, welcome on board.
0: Thanks for doing this, Jill.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. Great to talk and welcome to the Green Party.
0: <laughs> that was Dr. Jill Stein. Always amazing to talk to her. Be sure to check out the Green Party website. Check out her campaign website. Music for the 1000 podcast is provided by Andrew Saxon. Uh, Be sure to check out his podcast, the Bay Watching podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I said podcast way too many times in that sentence. And be sure to check out Andrew and mine's uh, web series, Frank Azuri. You can check that out over on Status Coup on YouTube. Leave us a five-star review, would you? This is a very new show. If you could leave us a five-star review, that really helps. And if you want to support this show on the sustainability end, you can do so over at patreon.com slash ronplacone. For a Give What You Can level, you get extended interviews, the bonus podcast between Andrew and myself, full stand-up shows not available anywhere else. I'll make you a theme song. You'll see my films before they're released elsewhere. And that's all for a Give What You Can level. Even a dollar a month goes a long way. So please, if you are able... Uh, sign up over at patreon.com slash all right we are moving right along this is our first presidential candidate uh, that we've had on the show this will be the first for 1000 of somebody who has run slash currently running for president so I, I guess that is a milestone in this uh very very new show and we're not going to be interviewing a ton of people in the on um, in the direct electoral political space so i don't know how how much more often something like this will happen, although I'm sure it's going to happen. It'll definitely happen again, but I don't know when. So there's another milestone. We're making milestones one episode at a time. See you all next week. Hey, guys, Ron Placone here. Take your own 1,000 challenge. No, you don't need to interview 1,000 people, although if you want to do that, go for it. Your 1,000 challenge can be whatever you want. Maybe you want to call a friend out of the blue once a week. Maybe you want to read a book every month. Maybe you want to start a different garden every season. I guess that might be dependent on where you live. Look, the point of the challenge is taking on an endeavor that enriches your life in some way, and it can be measured And then, of course, you do it regularly. That's what 1000 is doing for me and hopefully for you, too. The main reason for this podcast and every podcast I've ever done is to build community. So take your own challenge. Then join our Facebook group. It's called 1000 What's Your Challenge? That's 1000 What's Your Challenge? And post about what your 1000 challenge is and the progress you're making. All I ask is that people be encouraging of each other's challenges. This is personal and vulnerable, so be cool. There's enough negativity on social media. We don't need to add to it. For those of you who aren't on Facebook, hopefully in the future we'll be expanding to places like Discord, Reddit. But for now, we're starting on Facebook. And again, that Facebook group is called 1000 What's Your Challenge? See you there.